We're in week two of a four-week series on the book of Jonah, our mission in God's world. And while short, it's a mere 48 verses in total, its message is powerful. As we learned last week, the book of Jonah is all about God's heart for the world he has made. It's the story of God showing compassion to Israel's hated enemies, the Assyrians, through a very reluctant prophet, Jonah. The book concludes with God asking a piercing question of Jonah, should I not be concerned for that great city, Nineveh? The answer is an unabashed yes. Rich summarized it like this at one point in his sermon last week. God's heart is large enough to include the person you like the least. Or as my college president, Jay Kessler, used to say, there is a wideness in God's mercy. God wants all people to come to know his saving love. His love has no boundaries. It transcends geographic and racial barriers. God's heart is for all people to know him. But tragically, God's people, in this case represented by the prophet of Israel, Jonah, are not always on board with that plan or vision. In fact, this story reveals that sometimes the very people who are supposed to represent God to lost people are actually further from the heart of God than the people they are seeking to win. And that is certainly the case with Jonah. This masterful book is an archetype of how not to be God's people in God's world. Everything Jonah does is off. There's one bright spot in the book, one moment when he prays from the belly of the fish that we'll look at today. He has an awareness of his need for God, but even that, while sufficient for God to save him, is partial repentance. When you look at the entire book, Jonah does not want other people, and certainly not his enemies, the Assyrians, to know and experience the mercy of God. I'm going to reference a lot from the book of Jonah, so you may want to follow along in your Bibles. You can pull out those few Bibles. It's page 1405, 1405, if you want to uh, reference different parts of the book. In chapter 1, when God asks him to preach to Nineveh the mercy of God, Jonah responds with outright disobedience. He completely bails on the mission and flees from the Lord, chapter 1, verse 3. The text takes great pains to show that whatever Jonah was told to do by God, he does the exact opposite. He's told to go west to Nineveh, and he goes east to Tarshish, likely Spain, as far as you can get from Nineveh. Instead of rising up, as he's instructed in 1-2, he goes down to Joppa. Instead of going to the land of Nineveh, he goes to the sea. That's when God causes a great storm, which eventually leads to him becoming tossed overboard, which eventually leads to his come-to-Jesus moment, which we'll look at shortly. But right after, he spit out onto the shore, either right where he started, let's try this again, Jonah, or on the outskirts of the city of Nineveh, chapter 3. And it finally has Jonah doing the right thing. But if you look at it, it's still pretty bare minimum. His preaching to Nineveh in in chapter 3 is five Hebrew words, and he doesn't even mention God. Chapter 3, verse 8, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 
Then chapter 4, when God has compassion and mercy on the Ninevites and spares their lives instead of destroying them, this is how he responds. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. <laughs> At that point, in order to help Jonah get back on track, God gives Jonah another lesson via experiential learning through a plant. That whole incident in chapter 4 eventually elicits what Tim Keller calls Jonah's I hate the God of love speech. We'll look more closely at chapters 3 and 4 in the next two weeks, but it's important to look ahead at them briefly so we know how to interpret this passage today. Today's passage, chapter 2, is a different style of writing than the rest of the book. It's poetry. It's prayer, actually. Prayer taken mostly from the book of Psalms, which Jonah would have known as a good Hebrew prophet. This prayer has a lot to teach us about our own experience with God. In fact, even though subsequent chapters show us Jonah has not fully embraced and lived the realities he speaks to about in this prayer, nevertheless, what he declares and confesses is true, maybe even truer than he cares to admit. Before we read our passage, let me remind us where we last left exactly our non-hero. As I mentioned, Jonah flees from God's call, gets on board a ship, and goes down below deck, where chapter 1, verse 5 says, he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. He's finally gotten rid of God's call for him, so he thinks. He just wants to crawl under the covers and go to bed. I know the feeling. I don't always want to deal with God either or with what he's asking me to do. You want some Netflix down there, Jonah? A little binge watching can go a long way when you're trying to avoid your problems. A frantic and ironic scene unfolds. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up, all while Jonah is sleeping. The pagan sailors, fearing for their lives, try throwing cargo overboard, try crawling out to their gods, but nothing helps. Eventually, the captain wakes Jonah up, shouting, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. There's a metaphor for Christians at times. And the text gives this reality check. The people supposedly far from God are doing far more to come close to God than the man of God is. Desperate for solution, they cast lots, realize Jonah's the problem. Eyes wide with fear, they ask, who are you? Jonah 1.9, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Really? Well, if he made the sea, why'd you come here to run away from him? Jonah, realizing he's the cause of everyone's peril, instructs them to throw him overboard. But these pagan sailors don't want an innocent man's blood on their hands. They have far more regard for God and his people than Jonah seems to. They do their best to row to shore, but the sea grew even wilder than before, verse 13. Desperate, they plead in verse 14, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us account for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And that seems to be the end for Jonah. Certainly from the sailor's perspective it is. The sea was demanding Jonah and it got him. 
Satisfied, the wind and waves die down. Verse 16 puts an exclamation point on the irony. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. The pagan sailors pray to and worship God, while God's defiant prophet, who has yet to pray at all, is tossed overboard. Jonah's purpose for boarding the ship in the first place was to avoid pagan people coming to know God. Here, through his actions, inadvertently, he does just that. See, Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, does not yet have God's heart for either the sailors or the Ninevites he's been told to go to. And God would like to get him there. So he gives Jonah the opportunity to engage in experiential learning. Maybe Jonah is a hands-on learner, or maybe these patterns of thinking and feeling disdain for the Assyrians is so deep, God has to use other means to bring about his transformation. Either way, Jonah gets hurled into a raging sea to get what he deserves. But God doesn't give any of us what we deserve. Jonah 1.17 Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The Lord provided. The Hebrew means anointed or designated, a great fish to swallow Jonah. God exercises sovereignty over all his creation in order to accomplish his will throughout this entire book. The wind and waves, as we just saw, the fish, and then as we'll see in chapter 4, through a plant, a worm, and then winds again. God is committed to his mission for all people to come to know him, and he will use whatever means possible to see that happen. God wants Jonah to get a taste of the mercy he is so adamant that others not experience. And while it doesn't get through entirely, and Jonah still has issues at the end of this, he at least gets some of it. We know this because of how he prays in Jonah 2, verses 1 to 10. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again to your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Remember, this prayer is poetry. So as you can hear, many poetic devices are employed. Metaphors abound. God hearing my cry is not a reference to auditory sound waves, 
but to a supplicant's request being granted. Many stanzas are parallel couplets where the same truth is communicated in two different ways. For example, verse 2, In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. And from deep in the realm of the dead I called for help and you listened to my cry. Lastly, it's helpful to know that nearly all these verses are not original to Jonah. Nearly every phrase he uses, he borrows from the Psalms, which shouldn't be surprising. The Psalms were Israel's prayer book. Jonah, as a prophet, has prayed these prayers for years. They're so much a part of him. He can now draw on them in a time of need. Just like you or I might recount the Lord's Prayer or Psalm 23 while sitting in the ER in a moment of crisis, Jonah is able to draw on this wealth of prayers. In fact, one of the most interesting points about this prayer is that we assume it will be a lament or crying out to God for help, but instead it follows the pattern, actually, of thanksgiving psalms in the Bible. But for today, I want us to see two main reasons for this prayer. First, the prayer shows Jonah and us that God is interested in our transformation. God wants us to experience his mercy personally. Second, the prayer shows Jonah and us that God is interested in others' transformation too. He wants others to experience this mercy as well. Let's look at each of these in turn. First, Jonah's, and by extension, our transformation. All the frantic energy and drama that unfolds in chapter 1 comes to a screeching halt when Jonah is finally thrown overboard and the raging sea is calmed. The sea in ancient literature represented chaos, danger. Surely he's headed to his death. Indeed, the Hebrew word for swallow here can also mean destroy. It appears it is all over for Jonah sinking slowly to the bottom of the ocean, losing consciousness, he assumes this is it. But the Lord intervenes and provides a most unusual submarine rescue. And Jonah was inside the belly of the fish, from inside the fish he prayed. This word belly can mean insides, but it's also used elsewhere in scripture to mean womb as in Genesis 25:23, when patriarch Isaac's wife, Rebekah, has twin boys, Jacob and Esau, in the belly or womb. Old Test one Old Testament scholar notes, we expect this to be a tomb for Jonah, where he goes to die. Instead, it becomes a womb, a place of potential new life. The text is very clear to note in 2.1 that finally Jonah prays to the Lord his God. He's been running the other direction, avoiding reality, unresponsive to the circumstances unfolding around him. Even the pagan sailors have prayed. But Jonah has yet to face his reality with God directly. And at last he does. The text prior to this passage emphasized Jonah doing the opposite of what God asked. Instead of rising up to go to Nineveh, he goes down, down to Joppa, down below deck of the ship. Now, as his prayer describes, down to the bottom of the ocean. It doesn't get any more down than that. 
verses two to three. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the heart of the seas. Verses five and six, the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. Talk about a dark place. Talk about rock bottom. Jonah is there. And in this particular case, he's there by his own poor choices. He deliberately disobeyed God, tried to outrun him. That's not always the case for us. Sometimes we suffer just because we are in a fallen world, and this world is not yet all God intends it to be. We get caught in the crossfires. But sometimes it is our own willful disobedience to God's way. The foreclosure or bankruptcy from overextending financially. The ER trip you vow will elicit change in your behaviors. The isolation experienced from a lifetime of pushing people away. And on and on. In my distress, I called to the Lord. And what? He decided he'd had enough of me and left me in the depths. He decided I deserved this and left me at my tomb to die. No. He answered my cry. I called for help and you listened to my cry. You brought my life up from the pit. He saved me from this drowning with this fish whose womb, belly, insides just might change the inside of me. If God were only interested in the Ninevites' transformation, couldn't he have just sent another prophet who was more willing and obedient? But he's after Jonah's heart. He wants Jonah as his mouthpiece to have a heart that matches his words. And to do that, he's got to have Jonah experience a taste of what it's like to experience mercy. Maybe then he'll be more willing to share that mercy with others. I don't know where you are today, whether your heart's on a mountaintop or in the depths of despair like Jonah. But this passage serves as a poignant and personal reminder to all of us that no matter how far down at the bottom we are, God's grace can and does find us. God takes great pains to deliver Jonah from his self-inflicted mess. It's not only futile to run and hide from God, it's foolish. God is waiting to meet Jonah and rescue him and show him a new way. In fact, this text shows a God more willing to hear than we are willing to pray. God is at the bottom waiting for us. We just need to respond. And we respond with prayer. By talking with God about our circumstances and reminding ourselves of who God is. Even if our circumstances call that into question. Jonah is thankful God saved him from drowning, but he's still in a fish gut prison at the bottom of the ocean. He needs saving. But he recalls God's faithfulness throughout history by using the prayer book of God's people, the Psalms, to formulate his prayers. There is a wideness in God's mercy. Even for you, even for me. God specializes in hopeless causes of all kinds, pagan sailors in crisis, and cold-hearted religious types who resist following God's way. 
When we are at rock bottom, we will find we are not truly alone. Jonah finds God even in the deep. When you feel alone this week with your troubles, maybe in praying this psalm from Psalm 139 will be a comfort. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. I'm not saying Jonah's transformation is complete. It's clear from chapter 3. His change of heart is somewhat superficial. And in chapter 4, he has a relapse. There's more transforming work to be done. But isn't that often the case with many of us? Change is slow and hard. We need a lot of God's attention to bring it about. But even if it isn't lasting or deep, some step of repentance is something. And in Jonah's case, it's enough to launch him out of the depths, to literally spit him back onto land, back to where he is positioned to head to Nineveh and do the next right thing. Maybe you'll choose today from your depths to cry out to God and do the next right thing. But God isn't only interested in Jonah's transformation. The second purpose of the prayer is the transformation of others. God wants others to experience his mercy. Jonah alludes to this in verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. They forfeit receiving the love and grace God so desperately wants to give. And that's sad. Those gods aren't going to come through in a pinch. This is most aptly summarized by the climax of Jonah's prayer in verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not only the high point of his prayer, it's the literary midpoint of the book. This is a weighty phrase, and it means more than Jonah even cares to admit. The Hebrew is literally salvation or deliverance is of the Lord. (laughs) The prepositional phrase denotes possession. It belongs to him. It is his prerogative, his choice. God alone has authority in this matter. He gets to decide who is worthy of his mercy and love. And spoiler alert, as if it wasn't already clear, no one. This same mercy Jonah has just experienced is to be the experience of all people. That's what God wants, whether we're on board with that or not. We don't get to call the shots of who we think is worthy enough. Apparently, this is a problem not unique to Jonah because Jesus tells a number of stories with similar punchlines. Let, let me remind you of several of those now. One of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the prodigal son or the forgiving father in Luke 15, tells the story of one son who ran away, squandered his father's wealth, makes a mess of his life, eventually returns, repents, and is restored by his father's gracious love and forgiveness. But his older brother is resentful of the welcome home party. The elder brother proceeds to give his father his own version of the it's not fair, you're so generous speech, which you can read here. Jesus' response of the father in verses 31 to 32 is fixed. I haven't mistreated you. Everything I have is yours, but I want your heart to celebrate with me when people who don't deserve it 
are shown mercy. There's a wideness in God's mercy. And then there's the parable of the workers in the vineyard, which Jesus tells in Matthew 20, 1 to 16. Even though the workers start their jobs at different times, they all get paid the same amount. So the workers who started early in the day get angry. Jesus' response is a longer version of salvation belongs to the Lord, culminating with this haunting question, are you envious or angry because I'm generous? Jesus is saying the issue issue isn't how you're being treated. The issue is you're mad that others are being treated generously. And that's for me to decide. I will always give mercy to those who repent. There is a wideness in God's mercy. And one last story, one last Jesus story to shed light on the Jonah story. One of the biggest complaints people had of Jesus when he walked this earth is that he ate with tax collectors and sinners. He didn't surround himself with only the religious elite. (laughs) Jesus' response to this charge was, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. There's a wideness in God's mercy, even for the person you and I dislike the most. As you and I interact with people this week, this thought must be at the forefront of our minds. You and I have never met a human being who was not made in the image of God, whom God does not love, or care for, or long to see know his true character. We might not like it, we might not agree with it, but it's true nonetheless. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Every human being you and I encounter has been made by a God who loves them and longs for them to know his heart. Will we reveal some of it to them? If we are to be Christ's hands and feet, his body, how else are they going to know what he is like unless we do? Maybe your first step today of having God's heart for others is to simply spend time with people who wouldn't identify as Christians. Maybe God is inviting you to stop being afraid of others and instead move towards them in compassion. Or maybe you've already spent time with people who seem far from God, maybe so much so they drive you nuts. (laughs) Picture someone you have a strong distaste for. It could be someone who rubs you the wrong way or someone who's just downright mean. Maybe it's the kid who's the bully of school or the parent of the kid who's the bully at school. Maybe it's an estranged family member. Maybe it's the homeless person you see on your drive home or any Democrat, or any Republican, or Vladimir Putin. We're increasingly getting into graduate level showing mercy to others. Let's start at the elementary level. How about your neighbor who's a little odd? Or your coworker who seems to be struggling right now? Maybe this week when we interact with that person and we think, what is wrong with them? We can remember Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. Maybe instead we can pray, whatever is wrong with them, Lord, I know you want to transform as you have transformed me. Let me be a part of the work you are doing in them. City Church, the message of Jonah is that there is a wideness in God's mercy, even for you. 
It reaches us all the way down in our greatest time of need. And that same mercy is available to all, even to the person you dislike the most. For salvation belongs to the Lord, and should God not be concerned for those people too. Let's pray. We say with Jonah, O oh Lord, we thank you that you meet us in the depths, in the darkness, when we're without hope, and maybe we even are getting what we deserve. Thank you that your love does not leave us there. Thank you that you want to transform us. May it be so in each one of our lives that we would overflow with love and mercy towards others, even those whom we dislike the most. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.